Um, we have come to a place in the Gospel of Mark, the climactic moment of the Gospel. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, we've been asking the question, who is this one? Who is this man? He's like nobody we've ever seen before. He's like, he's like no one um, we've ever heard of. We, we've never seen a, a, a man do the things that he does. We've never heard a man say the things that he says. And now we're at a point in the gospel where, where Mark, who has, been, who has been faithfully recording this, this good news about Jesus, the, the Christ, the Son of God, he comes to the moment where he says, this is what Jesus is all about. So we not only see the culmination in this passage today of who Jesus is, but what he came to do. And it's a pretty uh, powerful moment. I don't want us to miss it. I, I don't want us to miss the cross. It's, it's, what, our, it's what our faith is all about. It's, it's what... It's what we, we believe in. And, and Christians have, have looked to the cross as the symbol of their faith for 2,000 years. One, one uh, writer said, The cross is the intersection where God meets humanity. Saving confession is not predicated on prior knowledge or proximity to Jesus, or privilege, it is rather an act of faith in a divinely revealed act of atonement. There are implications involved in the cross. It's, it's not just, hey, look what Jesus did. There are implications in it. When you walk out of t here today, you have to answer the question, who is Jesus to me? And is he who he revealed himself? Or have I made him in my own image? Have I said, oh, I think Jesus is this and that to me. Uh, he makes me feel good about this in my life. Or he helps me accomplish this in my life. Rather, will you go out of here today knowing he is the Son of God and then walk faithfully following him wherever he leads you? Let me read this passage out loud to you. And if I invite you, if you're able and would like to stand with me um, to do so, I'm going to read Mark chapter 15, verses 21 to 39. Mark chapter 15, verses 21 to 39. Actually, I'm going to back up a little. I'm going to just get the little, last little line of verse 20. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against, him, uh, charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right 
and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us to see truly who you are and to put our faith truly in you today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. What did Jesus come to do? Well, first, he came to fulfill God's eternal plans. Jesus came to fulfill God's eternal plans. I wish we could go over every single verse, every single reference um, in this passage. Almost every single verse in in this short passage that we read refers back to something in the Old Testament, some some prediction, some uh, prophetic utterance, some type of suffering uh, servant, some something in the Old Testament points to Jesus over and over again. We um, we heard uh, Psalm 22, right? We we had that read this morning earlier, and did you hear? The words of that psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The words are on Jesus' own lips as he's standing there or as he's, as he's hanging there, dying for you and for me. He says, I am scorned by mankind. I am despised. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. Many bowls encompass me, he says uh, in Psalm 22. Strong bowls of Bashan surround me. These are, these are symbols of, the, of, of great energy, great power. It, enemies coming against him, roaring, ravening. He says, I'm poured out like, like water. All my bones, my bones are out of joy. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. Mark doesn't record this. The other gospel writers do. Record how after Jesus died, the the soldiers came up and said, is he actually dead? Is he really dead? 
Do you, do you remember that part of the story? If you've read one of those gospel accounts, the spear was thrust into his side and water flowed out. His strength was dried up. His tongue stuck to his jaws. They looked at him. They gloated him. They divided my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. You see all of these predictions all of these, the things that, that the, the, the psalmist in Psalm 22 was suffering. He's saying, why is God far from me? I'm experiencing all of this anguish. Jesus came to fulfill all of that. God's eternal plans. And if you've been following with us in this uh, series together, you know that Jesus has over and over again said, this is what's going to happen to me. I am going to be betrayed. I am going to be arrested and beaten. I am going to be killed, and I will rise again. He says it to his disciples over and over. They, they're slow to understand. I wonder if we're slow to understand that, that this was all part of God's plan. Do you remember him in the garden? Jesus is in the garden. He's saying, Father, all things are possible. Remove this cup from me, but not what I will, what you will. Submitting himself to God's sovereign plan for him. He comes before the council. He doesn't argue. He doesn't talk back. He fulfills the words of Isaiah 53. The suffering servant. The man of sorrows. Bruised for our iniquities. He comes before Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, I am. But he doesn't fight back. He doesn't argue. He doesn't call on a legion of angels to rescue him. He, he hangs on the cross. And rather, as they're mocking him, saying, Come down from the cross. Come down. You who saved others, save yourself. Prove to us that you're the Messiah. Because that's what the Messiah would do. How, how is the Messiah supposed to save other people if he can't save himself? It's all part of God's eternal plans. God's plan. Christ's plan. In order to save other people, he hung on the cross. What was Jesus doing? What was he accomplishing? He was fulfilling God's eternal plans. And how did he do that? Or... What were those plans? For him to die? To suffer? More than that. Look at the um, scene where he is hanging on the cross in verse 33. Do you, do you notice this? When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And then at that point, Jesus cries out with a loud voice. Ever wonder about that darkness? Ever wonder when you look at a, a blank screen, you wonder why it's so dark? It's that way because God wanted it to be that way this week. It's actually the darkness. It, can you imagine back with me a, a scene that happened, oh, about 1,500 years or so before this? In the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. You've, you've seen the movies if you've never even read it yourself or heard it preached. The ten plagues of Egypt, right? Moses and the, 
and the people of Israel and coming out of Egypt. They're in slavery and, and they're coming out and all of these terrible things are happening. Remember the, the plague of blood and then the, the frogs and the flies and the gnats and the boils and, and the hail and the death of the cattle and all, all this stuff. And then darkness comes on the land. Preceding what? Well, was darkness the ninth or the tenth plague? Do you remember? It was the ninth plague. There's one last plague. There's one last mighty act of God to be done. The death of the firstborn. In every household, the firstborn son was going to die. And Jesus and God himself says to his people, I will pass over your home if you will sacrifice the lamb. And you will be saved. So what does God do here? His own son is hanging on the cross during the, that dark hour. In the middle of the day, when it should be bright and sunny, when, when things should be, you should be able to see well, when, when the light is supposed to be most apparent, the darkness has dominion. Oh, this isn't the darkness of evil. This isn't the darkness of, oh, the devil's having his way with Jesus. Oh, no, he's getting the upper hand. This is the darkness saying, God is saying, cursed be your sins. The darkness is a curse, and it precedes Jesus' death on the cross. What did Jesus do? He fulfilled God's eternal plans. And even in this passage, we see a fulfillment of that Exodus story. But what did he do? He died. His blood was poured out. He was the Passover lamb. He was the one sacrificed for you and for me so that the angel of death would pass over us. And what, what resulted? Well, if you go back to Exodus, the people came out of Israel, or excuse me, they keep, Israel came out of Egypt, and they became God's children. He said, you're my people, you're my son, I have brought you out of Egypt, I've called you out of Egypt, you're my firstborn son, Israel. So what is God, what is Jesus doing here? He is the Passover lamb making a way for people to become God's children. And where do we see that? Well, we see that in the darkness motif, but we see it most clearly in verse 38. Do you see what happened? After Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, Here's this little verse, tucked away in Mark's gospel. It's one of the most important verses of his gospel. But it's almost like, oh, and by the way, this happened, and now let's get back to the scene. Suddenly, it is, you know, you're watching a television show, and you're, it, everything's going along, and then suddenly you, uh, you shift to another scene, and something else happens, and you shift back. You're like, well, what was that all about? Well, it had everything. This, this, is, what, this is what it was about. This is the way. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
That's what Mark said. Now, there's a couple of curtains in the temple. There's one curtain that covers the holy place. And, and those who were worshiping in the courtyard, bringing their sacrifices, could see this beautiful ornamented curtain. And, and, and some of the historians describe this curtain. It was a woven tapestry. It was, it was huge. It, was, it, wasn't, um, it wasn't Venetian blinds, and it wasn't the little curtains that we have up in our, in our front room at home. It was this huge tapestry, and it depicted the earth and the heavens and, and the sky. And, and they, could, they saw that tapestry, and, and that represented the whole, the whole world, what they knew. And beyond that curtain, when the priest, the priest could go inside that curtain, and, and they would every day replenish the, the, the bread of the presence, and every day they would burn incense, and every day they would offer prayer, and they would look up that, at a second curtain, a curtain that separated them from the most holy place, where in the tabernacle and in Solomon's temple was the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat where God's glory was. And the, and the priest could only go in there to make atonement for sins once a year. So there's two curtains in the temple. And I don't know which one Mark was referring to. I have a feeling, based on some of the reading I've done, is that he was probably referring to that outer curtain that everybody saw. Everyone could see that outer curtain. Everyone could observe it. When it tore from top to bottom, it was not a secret. It wasn't something the priests could cover up and go, well, good thing, good thing nobody saw the inner curtain torn. I don't know if it really matters because either one of them separated human beings from God. Either one of them created a barrier between us and God. And his point is this. Jesus' death, Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus' Passover opened the way between God and humanity. Remember... Um, I was reading John 14. I was discussing it with some friends this week. John 14, verse 6. You remember what Jesus said there in that, that passage? I am the way and the truth and the life. And that's powerful. That's powerful. The way, the path, the road. I'm, the, I'm what you travel on to get to God. And, and, and it, that was such an important thing for Christians, for the disciples, that in the book of Acts, they're described as followers of the way. They followed the way, capital W, as how we would put it. They followed Jesus. He is the way. And Jesus, dying there, opened the way between God and humanity. There's no temple that can contain God. There's no holy of holies that can keep God in that cubicle box, that 30 by 30 by 30 box. Jesus has opened it wide open. And we have access 
to God himself. And then, flash back to the scene at the cross. And we see a centurion standing facing Jesus. Observing, seeing, don't, don't miss that, seeing the way he breathed his last, the way he ex- expired, and says, truly this man was the son of God. What was Jesus doing on the cross? What did he do on the cross? He revealed himself as the Son of God. Well, the phrase we've been using throughout our series together, the servant king. Here he is, the servant king, the Son of God. We looked at this passage, uh, we looked at all of chapter 15 in the last two weeks. What was the accusation against Jesus? What did the chief priests and the, and the scribes uh, come to Pilate saying, hey, here's, here's, here's our accusation against him. Here's why he deserves to be put to death. He claims to be the king of the Jews. So what do they do to the king of the Jews? They put a purple robe on him. They crown him with thorns. They mock him, of course. They, they, they mock him by saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they bring him out. And Jesus, as lifted up, verse 27, with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And what does that remind you of? Think back with me. Think back a few chapters. Do you remember James and John? Those two disciples, those thun- sons of thunder? They said, Hey, Jesus, we want you to do something for us. We have a big favor to ask. We want, we want you to let us, one of us, to sit on your right hand and one of us to sit on your left hand in your glory. And Jesus' answer was, actually, there's a place prepared. That's, that place has already been prepared for others. Here he is, the king of the Jews. And on his right and on his left are not two disciples, but two robbers or two insurrectionists, reminding us of the moment of glory. See, that's what's going on here. If, if Jesus is dying on the cross as the king, if he is being crowned, if this is his big royal enthronement, if this is his coronation ceremony as the son of God, the servant king, their Messiah, their Christ. This is all, this is his moment, not of failure. This is his moment, not of, of, oops, what just happened? I made a mistake. This is his crowning moment. This is his moment of glory. All of this passage has been leading up to this moment, this moment where the man says, centurion says, this man was the son of God. If you think through Gospel of Mark with me, Mark himself introduces his Gospel 
the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then in those opening scenes of the gospel, Jesus comes to be baptized by John in the Jordan. And you recall what happened there? The heavens were torn open, the Spirit descended on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Mark confesses him as the Son of God. The Father confesses him as the Son of God and that at his baptism. And then uh, you get into the first couple of scenes of Jesus' ministry, and who else is confessing him as, as the Holy One of God? The demons are. And several other times throughout the Gospels, it's evil spirits who are saying, we know who you are. You're the Holy One. You're, you're God's Son. And then again, on the mountain of transfiguration, God says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. And finally, a centurion, a Roman subject, a Gentile, an outsider, someone who hadn't followed Jesus, someone who wasn't privileged to have information, someone who didn't, who didn't have all of the, the scriptural knowledge of the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees. It's a Roman centurion who is proclaiming who Jesus truly is in that moment. This is Jesus revealing himself. And he can only be revealed as the Son of God, as our true King in his suffering and death. That's what Mark is trying to show us. Mark has told us over and over in this gospel, he had authority to heal. He had authority to command evil spirits. He had authority to teach. He had authority over the Sabbath day. He, he, he exercised all of these, these rights that only God has the right to. He calms the storm. He walks on water. He raises the dead. He does all of these things. Mark has been showing us, here he is. He has all of this authority. But in the end, in the end, it's his death that makes him our king. Mark 10, verse 45. Jesus said, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the key verse of the gospel of Mark. That's the verse. That's the big idea of the gospel of Mark. That's it. In one verse, that's this gospel. And that is being fulfilled right here. Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many by fulfilling God's eternal plans, by opening the way between God and humanity, by revealing himself as the Son of God, the Servant King. Why? Why? What difference does that make for you and me? So what? What ought we to do? What is this all about? Admire him? Feel sad 
Feel inspired? Feel like, oh, I'll go out and suffer too. Mm. Some of those things are part of it. He did that so that we ourselves, we could make the climactic confession. So we could look at him and say, truly, you are the son of God. I owe you everything. We don't know what happened to this Roman centurion. And in fact, you can debate whether what, what his understanding was. Well, maybe he just meant he was a kind of a divine person, or maybe he was just kind of a heroic individual. And wow, he's he's really different than all the other people I've crucified. Wow, something something interesting about him. That's not what Mark intends us to understand. Mark intends us to understand this is a confession of faith that the church has, has confessed. Now, for many centuries, why is this here? It's so that, why did he do what he did? It's so that we could make the climactic confession for ourselves. So we could see him and confess. And we do this in a couple of ways. This means that he becomes the sole object of our faith. I'll I'll admit to you, my faith is divided often. And, and I have to go back to him. I have to go back to, to what he did for me over and over. If I don't go back daily, if I don't think about his death for me daily, I will wander because my faith is so easily divided because I want other things. My heart is an idol factory. It's just churning these idols out. Hey, start worshiping that. Well, worship that. Worship that. Or better yet, look in the mirror and worship that. He did this so that we could make him, confess him as our sole object of faith. Maybe the legends about about the centurion are true. Maybe the stories about the centurions are are true. That he went on to to have great faith in Christ. To live a a godly, pious life uh, in in honor of Christ. Of, of Jesus, his Savior, and he recognized that he truly was his Savior, his Redeemer. He was the one who died so that God, the angel of death, would pass over him. Maybe he did. We don't have a lot of information in the Bible about him. But we do know this. This is what Mark intends for us. That's what he wants for us. He wanted his readers Peter preaching in Rome, he wanted his, his readers to go, the, the emperor is not the sole object of your faith. The emperor, who was called God's son, divine, and worshipped in little emperor cult temples all throughout the Roman Empire, he is not your savior. He is not the one Jesus is. Worship him. Let him be the sole object of your faith. But it also means this. And I I skipped over this and I saved it for last. It means following Jesus. So Mark doesn't make a distinction between a confession of faith and a life lived following Jesus. It's, it's one and the same. Good. Do you remember? Maybe I ought to read this to you. Jesus says, Who do people say that I am in Mark chapter 8? 
Maybe Elijah, maybe the prophets, maybe, the, maybe John the Baptist. Well, who do you say? Peter answers, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're, who else? And then he began to, to teach them what the Son of Man was going to do. What he was going to experience, right? He's going to suffer and die. And when, when Peter pushes back again and said, no, 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 that's not going to happen, no. You're not, that's, you're not going to die. You're going to be the king. You're going to be the Messiah. He said, no, you don't have the things of God in mind. You're thinking the things of man. Here are the things of God. Here's what God wants for you. Here's what God wanted for Mark's readers. Here's what God wants for me and for you. In verse 34, I'm, all, I'm in chapter 8 here. Mini sermon. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's what discipleship is. That's what belief is. That's what faith is. That's what a confession of faith is. You may get the words wrong every once in a while. You may not be able to parse it all out. When somebody asks you, well, what's your, what's your view on the atonement? You may not be able to describe penal substitutionary atonement, atonement, and that's okay. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Go back to that one. Are you following Jesus? Have you denied yourself? And that phrase, and take up his cross, Why do you think Simon was there? Why do you think Mark said, well, let me, let me go ahead and put a verse in here about Simon. Because Simon becomes the first person in history to take up his cross and follow Jesus. Mark, Mark doesn't, is, it doesn't put these things in without reason. What does he say? And we don't know who Alexander and Rufus are, but they were probably known to Mark's readers because they're only mentioned in Mark's gospel. And we don't know what happened to Simon. Maybe this was the moment of, of truth for him, his confession. Maybe this was his, the start of his walk with the Lord. We don't know that. But we do know this, that he was compelled to carry his cross. The word carry, take up. The same, same word, same thing. To carry, to take up, to pick up, to haul with you, not to just prop up somewhere, but to hold it and follow after Jesus to the place of the skull. What is Simon? For, for Mark and for us as we read this gospel, Simon is our example. Simon is what a disciple looks like. Simon is what a climactic confession looks like. At the beginning of the story, it's Simon taking up the cross and following after Jesus to his death. And at the end of this passage, it's the Roman centurion looking at Jesus and pondering his death and realizing he is who he said he was. What does it mean for us to come to the cross to come before him and to see him, to, to not be like the, the chief priests and the scribes who were mocking, saying, oh, if you'll do this, if you show us a great sign, we'll see and we'll believe. It, it, they'll only see and you'll only have faith if you look at Jesus' death. The, only then can you make 
the true confession, the climactic confession. What shall we do? What about us? What about you and me? Have you made the confession? Many of you have. Have you followed after him? Many of you have. But maybe the burden has been heavy. Maybe we feel like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My suffering is so great. Does God even see? Does God even know what I'm going through? Be sure that he does. He's a savior who received all of this on himself because he understood pain. He understood suffering because God looked at our misery, at our slavery, and said, I'm going to do something about that. I've got a rescue mission that I've been planning for a long time, and it's not my plan B. It's always been my plan A, and I'm going to accomplish this at the cross for you and for me so that we could confess and follow after him. I encourage you and implore you not to grow weary in following after Jesus, not to let up. We are with each other. We're not like the lone, the lone disciples here. God has done something in us. He has made his church. We'll see more about that as we ponder the next message. What happens at Jesus' burial and beyond? And we'll see the implications for this gathering of people and for all gatherings who confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. In the meantime, will you confess him? Will you follow after your king who has made a way for us to be with God? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask you, to do the work in us that only you can do. Only you can give us eyes to see God. Only you can help us to have the faith that is required for us to see and believe. God, help us. Help us to see you in the way that Centurion saw you in the way that Mark saw you and, and asked for his readers to see that you are our king, crowned with glory in your suffering, submitting to the will of God, your eternal plan for him, and making a way, making a way for us to be with you, our God, our Father, forever. I pray these things in the name of Jesus.